welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hi, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Anna Florence, a postdoctoral associate at the Yale Program for Recovery and Community Health, and I'm also a science writer for Madden America. Today, I'm very excited to sit down with Rhonda Rose Bate. She's a human rights advocate in the psychiatric community and works as a mental health peer specialist and recovery advocate at the Mental Health Association of Westchester in Westchester County, New York. She also is a trained facilitator and co-trainer for peer-supported open dialogue. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ro. Thank you so much, Anna. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So my first question to you is, so how did you become a peer? That is a loaded question. Um, You know, for me to answer that, gosh, I really had been going through a lot of, you know, struggles throughout my childhood and young adulthood. Finally having like my first hospitalization um, in the end of, you know, my 20s. And then I, you know, found myself in and out of hospitalizations and outpatient programs. Um, And then I finally landed on um, the parachute program um, once I moved to uh, Harlem, New York, and really was struggling. And so I was actually hospitalized and someone from Parachute came into the inpatient unit and introduced the program to me. Um, And I was like, hmm, this sounds different. You know, I heard things like uh, social network meetings. I heard things like, you know, you'll have a say in your services, um, that you're part of the process. So all of that seemed new. Um, after several hospitalizations. So I definitely was interested um, once I heard about that. And so after that particular hospitalization, I enrolled um, in Parachute and was a participant and really engaged with peers for the first time and was blown away by just the the boldness, the confidence, all of that. Um, I work directly with a peer um, as a part of my team. Um, So I would meet with them weekly um, as well as see a therapist or whatever, you know, more traditional services. Um, I think for me personally, what really crystallized the peer role in my mind was going to the respite parachute i think was a part of something called community access and they had a respite um i stayed there for a week and that week was a week of just engaging with peers who worked at the respite and having amazing conversations wonderful conversations you know that i had never had with people who quote, had lived experience, um, either similar to me or very different than me. And also, you know, just a footnote about Parachute, you know, it was a program that, you know, primarily worked with people um, on the psychosis, you know, that had psychosis 
uh, diagnosis of some kind. Of course, we could have a lot of debates about that language, but you know, I was able to just connect with people in a different way. And so anyway, I stayed there for that week. I really was attuned to the people who worked there as peers. I still had a long journey after that. Um, there were other hospitalizations. I moved out of Harlem and got connected with more, again, traditional uh, services after um subsequent uh, hospitalizations. But um, a therapist that I was working with talked to me and really suggested, she was like, you know what, I think you would be really good as a peer. <laughs> and, you know, in the back of my mind, I, I wasn't really remembering parachute in my time there. Like in real time, I actually was just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I was like, no way. Like, you, you're suggesting that I talk about my story and that I connect to other people who've had lived experience in a professional or potentially professional context. So actually the idea wasn't really alluring to me and I was quite hesitant, um, but she kept suggesting it. And really I, it got, I got to a point where I was just like, okay, I need to think of something that I have to do after this outpatient program. So I looked into it and actually enrolled to the MHA um, peer training program. And that was in um, 2015 that I started the peer training. Awesome. That's such a, an inspiring story. I guess um, having had contact with the parachute program was a big, um, sounds like a big part of just kind of seeing that work for the first time, um, as you say, interacting with with people who've gone who had gone through the system and and connecting with them from from a different place, um, and also the respite model seemed to to have been an experience that um, that was important for you. Um, was that a huge contrast compared to let's say hospitalizations? What would you say are like the main differences that made you um, maybe like the parachute program more than other traditional forms of care? Yeah, I mean, you know, what was so cool and great about it was that I could wake up in the morning, I could leave out, you know, I was in Manhattan, I could go, you know, to the convenience store, I could go to the park that was down the street. And you know, and I was really in the height of a lot of intense experiences. Um, you know, I have a, had a laundry list of diagnoses, psychiatric diagnoses. So I don't even think it probably matters <laughs> because it was everything in the kitchen sink, probably. Um, but I will just say I was at the height of everything that I was going through. And to be able to go about my day and design and experience my day the way that I wanted to. And if I wanted to have support and needed to talk to a peer, I could come back from getting a coffee and sit down and have a conversation about what I was going through and not have it be pathologized and not have everyone scared about liability, you know, definitely giving 
mindfulness, you know, you know, I don't think anyone wants anyone to, you know, be in harm, but it wasn't like this impending, oh my gosh, she's leaving, you know, what's going to happen. So it was very different than a hospitalization and everyone was just so cool. Everyone was so supportive. Everyone had time. Um, and I think that that's really important because I think in a hospital, you don't really feel like people have time all the time that are supposed to be supporting you. So the peers there really had tons of time and really wanted you to experience the person being there, experience it the way that they wanted to experience their time there. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, I think that, you know, the ideas of liability and risk are, I think, very dangerous ideas that have been part of psychiatry since its beginning. And I think a lot of it has to do with just fear um, and, you know, just wanting to control others rather than uh, an, an effort to protect others. It sounds like you were treated with extreme dignity, um, even though in your own words, you were, you know, at the height of very intense experiences. Uh, but that didn't deter you from, you know, going in and out of the respite and going to a convenience store and just taking a walk at a park. Um, so it sounds like that is a huge difference uh, compared to the ways hospitals are organized. And you mentioned two very key, I think, um, concepts that shape the the psychiatric experience um, as risk of people becoming violent and mm-hmm. and liability in 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 terms of well who's then going to answer for that right yeah absolutely I mean you know I really you know who knows I mean no one would have known what was going on and how I was really really feeling. Um, But I felt like I had the opportunity to really share honestly without any fear. Um, And I realized that right away. Um, After my first night there, I was just like, wow, this is an amazing experience. And I didn't even think that a respite type of experience was even something possible until I experienced it for myself and really felt the experience and lived it for that, for that week that I was there. I think, I mean, I appreciate you sharing your personal story just because, um, well, not only because, but one of the main things that I think are problematic nowadays in in mental health is that um, even though parachute was a huge success for you as a, as a program, um, the program ended up, you know, not continuing and it doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, we don't have all the research to, to back it up and to say how impactful that program was for, for people's lives. And, and so I think that your personal experience with it um, might help us rethink how, how we conceive of, of evidence um, and what's important for people and who is it important to and who's defining, you know, the terms of what is important in a treatment setting. Um, so I appreciate your um, sharing your story because I think we should start listening to these voices a lot more. Um, 
I wonder if you could maybe go back a little bit in time and 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 tell us tell us just about your your journey. Like how how have you interfaced um, with the psychiatric system, perhaps before parachute? It was difficult. You know, my first hospitalization. You know, you you always think that you know hospitals are going to be you know a place where you're going to get you know, support and you're going to be cared for and taken, taken care of. Um, and that, you know, when you have physical ailments and you go to the ER, I think, you know, you go in there with the issue and hopefully you're coming out either feeling better or at least having some assurance that, you know, you can go about your life with some optimism Um, psychiatry, of course, and mental health issues, obviously, I think I had a rude awakening, (laughs) um, when I had my first hospitalization, um, you know, first of all, I was, you know, the rooms were, you know, cold and, you know, there was definitely no television, no type of entertainment, no internet. I mean, you know, it was very sterile and I'm just like, oh, you know, this isn't about comfort. Um, so I think, you know, when I had my first psychiatric hospitalization, I realized very quickly it was not about comfort. And I thought that I would be getting comfort, you know, coming from a place of only interfacing with a hospital from a more medical, physical perspective. So that was, that was kind of like the first thing that hit me. And then secondly, being surveillance and also like being watched and that was new too. I'm just like, wait a minute, why are people coming every so many minutes to check up on me, to make sure that I'm okay? Um, All of those things. So, I mean, you know, my first interfacing with the psychiatric system was, you know, directly was really, really harsh. And, and it was also shocking because I kind of grew up with a very different ideal of uh, mental health. Um, My mother um, was a uh, clinical social worker. And I just remember growing up and she was working on getting her doctorate um, in clinical social work. And I saw the passion that she put into her work um, and the dedication. And, you know, she even had a private practice. So, you know, I really thought that, you know, clinical therapeutic support was a positive experience for people. And, you know, also, too, it just it just was night and day. It just wasn't that. And I, I think that that was the most shocking thing. Yeah, it sounds like it was a, kind of a rough experience. And maybe, I mean, the way you describe it doesn't sound like a place you would go to recover from anything. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder if, if there was a moment um, in your recovery journey when something really worked for you and whether there was a moment 
um, that would sometimes support, you said, well, yeah, it seems like this is, this is going in the right direction. Um, was there one moment like that? Or do you see it more as um, that you can't really pinpoint something that happened? H- how is that? You know, I, when I reflect back on my, my whole journey, like from beginning to now, you know, I think what shifted was that probably, I think dialogue and having my supports all be on the same page was a big shift. Um, Understanding that it wasn't just me, that it could be, my community or my family um, that factored into why I experienced the things that I experienced. And I'm, I'm kind of deliberately, you know, not using diagnostic language because I don't want to get trapped in labeling, well, I had this diagnosis and I had that diagnosis. Um, For me, it just, you know, I feel like it humanizes the experience if we look at it as just, yeah, I was going through stuff and it was multiple things, you know, um, regarding mental health um, issues and experiences and and or extreme states. So, no, there isn't any one particular point, but I think things started to shift when other people and other factors were added to the conversation other than myself. That makes a lot of sense. Um, And I should say that you are currently a facilitator and a co-trainer for something that is called peer supported open dialogue. And I wanted to take a minute to talk about that because I think it connects um, with what you're saying that the moment that things shifted for you was the moment when, you are no longer um, the the only person going through these experiences, but you're, you know, other people in your network were involved in it, or maybe an understanding that that was a broader um, situation rather than just something you were experiencing yourself. And we know that the parachute program um, was developed and, and inspired by need adapted treatment and open dialogue, mm-hmm. both approaches developed in Finland in the 80s. Um, and they have been ad- adapted here in the United States and in several other countries around the world. But one very innovative thing that Parachute did was to combine open dialogue, which was um, in its origins, a clinical approach with the tradition of peer support that has been around in the U.S. since the um, civil rights movement um, and since the um, idea that clients, survivors, consumers, ex-patients, and and however um, folks, folks would like to identify should have a seat at the table and that lived experience has um, an important is an important asset and has something to offer um, as a, a as a therapy. So I'm wondering. Well, you experienced that very approach and then went on to become yourself a peer supported open dialogue facilitator. <laughs> how how did that happen? I'm wondering the same thing too. And 
Um, yeah, I mean, that's the stuff that you just can't even, I mean, there's no way of plotting that out. Um, just to go back to parachute real quickly, um, as well as having a really robust respite um, that just had amazing, fierce, passionate, just amazing peers. Um, a part of the program was having social network meetings. So myself and my identified um, social network, which happened to have been my mother, we would have social network meetings at Parachute. Um, we would have them as frequently as, you know, I wanted them. And I think we had about maybe four, maybe five uh, social network meetings. And I think that was kind of planting the seed. It, you know, I was able to hear my mother for the first time without us arguing, without us having a lot of rage against each other. I mean, we, we really developed a pretty toxic relationship um, over the years. By the time I started getting hospitalized and definitely by the time I was enrolled in parachute, our relationship was pretty toxic. And the social network meetings at parachute, you know, my mom was sitting at the table. I was sitting at the table. The peer was sitting at the table. Every, everyone was at the table. So there was no hiding. Um, and I was able to hear my mother. And I think my mother was able to hear me in a safe space. And yes, uh, you're absolutely correct, Anna. You know, it, it wasn't quite peer-supported open dialogue, um, but it pulled on open dialogue and, like you said, need, need adapted treatment uh, models. And, and so there was a peer that was very much a part of the process and a part of the support in facilitating the conversation that was occurring between me and my mother at that time. Yeah. Um, and I know that, you know, people are very familiar um, now with with open dialogue and there is a lot of research around, um, you know, all the outcomes research that was that was done in Finland and and then, you know, other studies from Scandinavia and from adaptations of open dialogue, but still peer supported open dialogue aside from a couple of isolated experiences, a couple here in the United States and one. Um, big clinical trial that is assessing whether peer-supported open dialogue provides better outcomes uh, within the NHS than treatment as usual, it's still rather unknown um, to people. I wonder if you could tell me what your day as a peer specialist, what does that look like? Yeah, you know, so... After the whole parachute, you know, experience, it was, you know, many years, I would say about a good maybe five, six years that passed, went to the peer training, uh, completed that, became a peer specialist, got certified um, in New York, and just started doing the work. And that's when the passion you know, kind of just came alive in me. Um, and I guess I found my lion's roar <laughs> because, you know, all of my experiences kind of, in a way, unbeknownst to me, of course, led up 
to me being in a position where, you know, not only did I get trained to be a peer from MHA of Westchester and also getting certified um, in New York State to be a peer specialist, but I was able to meet um, Cindy Peterson Danoff. And together through MHA Westchester, we started really focusing on peer-supported open dialogue and trying to figure out a way of how to develop a way of experiencing it and also learning it with the highest regard and mutuality between a peer specialist and a clinician or any other mental health professional. Um, so we very much partnered together. Um, so when I think about implementing the practice of peer supported open dialogue or the approach of peer supported open dialogue, it's about really developing relationships with the people that you're working with. It's not about trying to stay so pure that you miss out on the opportunity to connect to and relate to the very best that a clinician or a mental health professional is bringing to the table um, for support. And, you know, I'm very, very aware and conscious that there's so many different opinions out there about peer and clinician relationships. And I totally respect um, those opinions, but there's something that happens when you're working with families and they're not only seeing just the clinical perspective, but they're also seeing the peer perspective equally. And that's the key component is that we aim in peer supported open dialogue to have equality. So the peer support and the peer perspective that's shared in um, the social network meetings or the peer supported open dialogue meetings, they're equally as valued as any other clinical or whatever, whoever else is in a more clinical role voice. That's, that's so interesting. Um, I mean, we know, I, we know that open dialogue invites all voices um, to, to be in the room and to be present. Um, there is even a concept that they developed uh, to describe that that's called polyphony. And, and, and really um, that is one of the ways in which open dialogue tries to correct some of the power imbalances that are um, longstanding in, in psychiatry and, and between clinicians and clients. Um, however, at the end of the day, um, the clinical team has some power um, to involuntarily admit someone, to medicate someone against their will. And so how, how do you think that this way of working um, rebalances um, things between person at the center of concern, their network, and and the clinicians. Um, mm -hmm. How do you view this this relationship between peers and clinical professions, and also this issue of power that plays into treatments? It's tough. I think you know. 
they're probably when people think about, oh, you know, a peer and a clinician. Well, obviously the peer isn't going to have that much, you know, influence because because of the history. Right. You know, historically. And it's very heartbreaking, um, you know the clinical role has that dominance traditionally and historically in peer support open dialogue. And I really hope this is clear. We really try to break down the power differentials. It really, the emphasis is on the peer perspective being equal and tolerating uncertainty, which I know is a feature of open dialogue. And allowing that to really exist um, with mindfulness to, you know, one's safety. I've had many meetings where, you know, a person might bring um, up, you know, thoughts of wanting to harm themselves or, you know, there were some concerns around that. We absolutely don't neglect that, but we're not going to freak out and, you know, immediately you know, jump in and call it cops. We want to have a conversation. We want to hold space for dialogue about very emergent and typically considered crisis level things, or maybe not even crisis level things. Not every meeting um, is necessarily being held because there's a crisis. If it so happens to be a crisis, peer supported open dialogue, I think one of the most compelling components about it is that it allocates space for conversation to really get an understanding of what is needed the most. And if that is a call, you know, for someone to go to the emergency room, then fine. And if that's mutually understood um, or is, is agreed to, then that will be one of the outcomes. Um, But we don't lead with that. We try not to lead with, okay, I'm hearing something that, you know, has liability. So let me, let me think of all of these safety plans and, you know, tell this person to immediately go to the hospital. We really want to hold space for dialogue and maybe even have another meeting, you know, Um, if we feel like that, is something that the family and the person of concern or the center of concern is agreeable to and wants, that's what makes it different. Um, The clinical perspective is really there, yes, to do their clinical assessments, but also to tolerate and partner with the peer perspective to say, hey, what's really going on in this dialogue? how much toleration of uncertainty can we hold? Like we'd rather hold more uncertainty and feel okay about it than holding too little and then making decisions out of fear. And I typically think that the psychiatric community historically and in the traditional sense has reacted out of fear Um, instead of out of response. And I think those two things are different. Absolutely. You touched on so many important points um, right there. I I was wondering if we could focus on that relationship between clinicians and peers. 
Um, I think, um, as you know, there's a lot of um, controversy in both worlds. Um, the open dialogue world uh, may consider open dialogue as a clinical approach and may not be willing to incorporate peers into that practice. And also in the peer world, sometimes partnering with a clinician can be seen um, in a, as, a, as something bad or as a way of co-opting the work of peers or as a way of peers acting like clinicians and doing the same things or, or the same violences that, that clinicians um, sometimes do. So this sounds like being in a very difficult world um, where there are problems everywhere. How do you see that relationship between clinicians and peers, their roles in this, and, and, and these problems or issues that I just raised? I'm going to have to really go back to, once again, my history. And, you know, I hope that, you know, the community out there can hold space for my personal history. Um, like I mentioned earlier, um, I was raised primarily by, you know, a mother who was, a, you know, a clinician and, you know, who was getting her doctorate while I was a eight-year-old, nine-year-old. So I really held what she did with such high regard. Um, I saw her level of commitment and dedication with the people that she was working with. And I just saw that level of wanting to really understand and connect. Um, so I kind of had that as a part of my lived experience in my childhood. Um, and there's another element to this too, um, that I think lays the foundation as to why I have the perspective that I do and, and the passion that I do. Um, you know, I'm a person, I, I identify as a person of color. My mom um, is a person of color. You know, she really built a legacy um, from her work um, that stayed with me. Um, I saw her, you know, working until, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 a.m. on her doctorate. I saw her private practice and saw her commitment. Um, you know, I'd be like, you know, who are these people coming in and out of our house, mom? <laughs> and she was like, you know, you know, they're, you know, people that I just work with who were going through things. So my perspective, I think, of a clinician wasn't this scary individual that I automatically had to be um, defensive of. Now, of course, that changed, you know, as I went through my own journey. But for me personally, I can't vilify clinicians and, and people in the clinical community because I saw what my mother went through. Um, I saw her labor as a person of color, you know, getting her doctorate. Um, she eventually became a dean. You know, she really was able to build a life and I think left a legacy through her commitment um, to being a clinical social worker. So I think that's important for people to understand that that factors into a little bit of, you know, if not 
quite a bit of my perspective. I have to give respect to her legacy and the sacrifices that she made to put all of that work into doing what she did and, and really having that level of commitment for the field. So I just kind of wanted to, to give that as my own personal antidote of, of what might have shaped a lot of my perspectives. So fast forward, um, you know, working with clinicians, a part of the reason why I'm interested in it is because it is so elusive, you know, like people don't want to do it. And I'm like, okay, why? <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, why, why are we resisting this dynamic? You know, if we have an opportunity, if we're getting certified, if we're getting trained, if we're able to try and make a decent wage out of supporting people and offering a, another way of looking at things, why be against the very people who are a part of the process? So... I always, I just, I just became curious about that. I became curious about where can the peer perspective fit and where, where does it live? Um, because obviously it's necessary um, in parachute. That was very clear to me. This is an imperative view that needs a platform. Um, and unfortunately, you know, for better or worse, that platform is, sometimes being a part of the very system and structure that historically has oppressed peers. And I say that with caution because, you know, I'm once again aware that, you know, I would never want to feel like I'm oppressed or marginalized in my role. And I try my best not to be. I think I have a very loud and clear voice and I will disagree with something that I totally don't agree with. Um, but at least I have that position to even disagree. And I think that that's important that peer peers, you know, who are working um, within a clinical context or partnering with clinicians that they have the opportunity you know, at least have the opportunity to have the lived experience perspective and also just the peer and recovery perspective and a different perspective, just in general, to the table. That makes a lot of sense, Ro. Um, I'm wondering, you know, there, there might be some spaces where that's very possible. You mentioned parachute as one and where you work, MHA seems to be a place that invites that, uh, but not all places um, can be as inviting um, of the peer role um, as some of these other um, maybe more progressive um, agencies or programs. Um, I wonder if if there are difficulties on your on your day to day that are related to that very dynamic, and whether you, and how how do you experience that? There's tons of difficulties. This is not easy in any way, shape, or form. Advocating to build a relationship and to change the conversations that are happening 
all of that is uphill. I mean, you know, all of that is uphill work every single day. Luckily, I've been able to either help create spaces where um, I've been able to partner very successfully with other clinicians and um, even um, a psychiatrist. And I know people might get freaked out and, (laughs) you know, up in arms when I say that, but um, I was also a peer um, at On Track, um, MHA of Westchester's On Track. And that offered me an amazing opportunity to really change the dynamic And I wasn't alone. Um, There were many, many other on-tracks that implemented peers into the context of the program. So that was one of the first places that I I really was able to be like, you know what, Let's, let's have conversations. I really got close to the clinicians there and they started to really see the value of the peer perspective. And started inviting me into conversations. And I think a part of that was just because I was so strong-willed and I was just like, I want to have a voice in this dynamic. I want to have a voice in this program. Um, And that's really where I started to kind of carve out the development of my voice. And that's where my voice got stronger, I think, is through those partnerships and collaborations that were allowed, you know, through the way OnTrack was designed. So coming from that space, I think developed a sense of confidence, like, hey, my voice does matter. Um, It can make a difference. It is helpful. I even ended up partnering with an amazing um, psychiatrist that was on the team very atypical. She was very badass. And we partnered together because I said, you know what, I would love to see something where, you you know, if you're going to talk about psychiatric medications, I would love to talk about how psychiatric medications affect people who've taken them. So we developed a really, um, cool presentation about like, you know, psychiatric medications. And she did it from the psychiatric perspective. And I did it from the lived experience perspective and really got nitty gritty, you know, things like metabolic syndrome, things like, you know, being over medicated um, and how that makes you feel and what that does to a person's state of mind. You know, again, these are, you know, might sound like really strange or like even inappropriate to some people dynamics, but these are the very dynamics that why can't they shift if they're not working, if they're negative experiences, why can't we go in there as peers and bring our voice to the table and inform people who I don't even think they know anything different. A lot of clinicians and psychiatrists, they've been taught in a certain way and that's all they know. And I think when you bring in the peer perspective, you're bringing in something new and offering the opportunity to inform people. 
Yeah, I mean, you touch a very um, important point. I think um, maybe the the training culture of of clinicians um, really instills some of the some of these values that open dialogue and peer supported open dialogue try to recreate from a more dialogic perspective. Um, I I know that there is some research um, around the parachute program. And the the train the entire training process of training clinicians in both approaches, both um, need adapted treatment and um, intentional peer support. And how how difficult it was for clinicians to unlearn some of the things that they had learned throughout their entire careers. So I I'd say that there's evidence out there that there is a lot of unlearning needed, um, maybe to be able to be to have that space to have peers, as you say, at the table, it still looks like there is a long way ahead of us. Um, There are many challenges as things stand. I wonder how you see um, the future of of, of peer supported open dialogue. Do you think it's going to be possible to expand outside of these small initiatives or or do you think that these are very localized experiences? What's your your take on that? I think it has every possibility of being implemented. I just think that the right individuals have to support it. I think that maybe people who are uncomfortable in more traditional mental health professional roles, you know, open themselves up to a different experience because I want to make it very clear peer support of open dialogue. Yes, it, it comes out of open dialogue, but it is very different. As I mentioned, the peer perspective is completely encouraged, supported and necessary for the facilitation of the meetings that occur, um, be it, you know, peer support open dialogue meetings. Um, there even have been variations that we've done at the Mental Health Association of Westchester where we've done groups. So we've done peer supported um, open dialogue groups with people who might not necessarily have a family or identified social supports, but the group itself becomes a social support structure. So it really is about finding new ways and having new dynamics created. Um, And it takes more than just the peer voice and it takes more than just the clinical. it, It really needs both in order to shift the paradigm. And so I'm hopeful I'm optimistic and I do understand the challenges because like you said, Anna, um, there is a lot of unlearning and I think that hopefully there's a willingness to do things differently. I mean, nothing really is going to change if people aren't willing to do things differently. I'm willing to do things differently. I want to get in there and I want to say, hey, you know, we traditionally and historically have been at odds with one another. And I even personally, like I've been at the 
receiving end of some horrific decisions from clinicians and psychiatrists. But you know what? I want to understand where you're coming from. And if we can work better together and support a family and support an individual better together, then why not do that? Why not make that possible? So that's where my passion comes from, is that I think there's actually strength in working together if it's done correctly. And I think peer-supported open dialogue is one of the most successful ways I have seen it done. That's great, Ro. I think there are many challenges um, ahead of us in terms of implementing or scaling up and expanding um, dialogic approaches. On the one hand, there is an argument that, you know, fidelity to the original model is important and that we should be replicating the same thing in order to get the same outcomes. And there, there also a, another point of view or another perspective of, you know, let's get some of the elements that work here and, and try to see how that fits into our practice and, and start incorporating those things and, and see, you know, what new, new things can emerge from that. And it looks like you're involved in a, a very innovative and, and cutting edge attempt, I guess, to create something new um, inspired by open dialogue principles, but also truthful to um, the value of peer work. So I really appreciate you talking to me today. You do amazing work and thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much, Anna. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.